0: You can also listen to us nationwide from the World Family smartphone app, available from our website. You're listening to Rita Maria, Christian in your home. We're now present at the show, Jesus, Abraham, Messiah,
1: Judaism, a voice showman.
0: Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and welcome to Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Now, usually the show is explicitly uh, oriented around the transformation and continuation of Judaism into the Catholic Church, and in doing so, I very often have um, uh, converts, essentially, on to give their witness testimonies. Uh, and and very frequently, they're converts from Judaism. I don't like the word convert because I don't see it as a change in religion. It's just following the religion through the transformation, which was always intended. But that's a topic for another show. Um, but anyway, it's always very edifying and interesting to have... Um, people tell their witness testimonies on the show. And um, if you've been listening for a while, you may remember that a while back I had a guest named Sally who gave her witness testimony. It was from um, a rather... uh, I don't want to tread on any toes, but aggressive atheism to fully sold out um, Catholic faith. And um, Sally has written another book recently that is uh, is not completely unrelated to her entry into the Catholic faith. It's it's uh, ooh, I think I'd be better off letting her describe what the book is. But in any case, I invited her on today to um, talk about her new book and talk about um, I don't know how to say it. it sounds corny living the faith because that's me. Um, I had the opportunity to, to read her new book, and it seems like a very intimate exploration of sort of living the faith from the inside. So with that, let me kind of turn it over. Are you there, Sally? Yeah, I'm here. So um, you heard that little introductory babble. Um, <laughs> the, um, so I think that probably it would be good if you took it from there. You'll certainly be can't possibly be more tongue-tied than I am today. And, um, uh, you know, give a little introduction to who you are and how you find yourself in the Catholic Church and then why you wrote this book and what um, the purpose of the book is. I hope I didn't mischaracterize it too badly. So it's all yours.
1: Thank you, Roy. Yeah, it's such a joy to be here again. And um, yeah, I, um, I am a convert, as you say. And my conversion took place in 2010, and the book that I wrote about that conversion was called um, Night's Bright Darkness. And maybe I'll give a a little outline of my conversion, because as you say, um, almost without intending it, this new book um, is a kind of a continuation of Night's Bright Darkness. In fact, people have said to me since Night's Bright Darkness, or will there be a sequel? And I was always like, no, <laughs> you know, I thought that would be impossible. And I, I won't say this new book is a sequel because it's not that straightforward. But if I can leave that hanging for a second, um, when I come to the new book, I, I'll make it clear kind of how it how it follows on. Um, so back in 2010, um, I was a poet. I mean, I still am a poet. Um, and I was an atheist and a feminist and all that kind of stuff and, and very much hated the Catholic Church because it was uh, particularly around then that there were, you know, fresh allegations of abuse within the church. And I felt that the church was, you know, sexist and unfair and unjust. And I couldn't bear the policies of, um, you know, um, about condoms in Africa and and all all these things that liberals always have an issue with with the church. Um, And I was pro-choice, etc. And I but I always I always had a fascination. in a sense, with Catholicism, that, you know, people who were kind of bright picked up on. And and this is key. Um, you know, before I converted, I'd re- already written and published two poems about the Annunciation. And they were quite blasphemous poems about the Annunciation. But um, I was obviously looking long and hard at that at that event already. And I was obviously very kind of drawn. I, I couldn't stop kind of looking at religious art, etc. Anyway, um I'd published a couple of books of poetry in England but I was living near Rome uh, with my husband and daughter and I was actually looking to write a different kind of book because I was becoming very disenchanted with poetry which I think is no coincidence because from from my perspective as a as an artist in inverted commas as someone who's producing literature if you if you break the connection between the divine and the art the art just implodes So this is why, you know, these days, the art that's um, postmodern and deconstructionist kind of ceases to be. You know, we literally in London will have art installations that are simply tiles on a floor or an empty room and and a light going on and off. I mean, it truly is nothing. You know, it's like we've absolutely buried ourselves in the ground. And and poetry is, is I think, very similar. Contemporary poetry kind of bends over backwards, not to say anything. So I, I was feeling very... Very disenchanted, as I say, and I began to write a book with a doctor friend about um, about women's um, sexuality because I, we wanted to to write a very kind of comprehensive guide to women's health and sexuality, etc. And and part of my brief was to interview as many people as possible for this book. And in the course of that, I wanted to speak to Catholic women about their sexuality, but but nobody would speak to me. I, I had some some Catholic friends. Because just simply by virtue of living near Rome, um, but no one would talk to me. And I eventually wound up writing to a Catholic priest, Father Gregory, and asking him if I could talk to him about this book <laughs> on female sexuality, which, frankly, my letter was so blunt, I, I won't kind of quote it on the radio, but I was so blunt writing to him that he could have just, you know, slammed the metaphorical door in my face, but he didn't. and. He was so bright and so funny and so intelligent and so kind that I just thought to myself, you know, how can he be a Catholic? You know, how can he live with himself? Why doesn't he simply leave the church? So I asked him whether I could ask him a few questions about that. And we ended up having this email exchange that got quite, um, quite feisty, shall we say. Um, And that was in the March of 2010. And then what happened from that point was that between March and May, June, I, I had three very specific experiences that I would sort of classify as mystical experiences, which are, I think, are very common with converts. You know, we have these incredible experiences that clearly come from from beyond us, they're clearly transcendent because we we don't have the background, we don't know what we're witnessing, you know, it's like, how could we, it's not in our own heads, it's something that's entirely extraneous that comes into us. And it was only at the end of this period that I I figured out that my own particular experiences were with the Father, and then the Holy Spirit, and then with the Son. And so, I'll just kind of focus on one because I I can't talk all night about this, but I could, but perhaps I shouldn't. my experience of the father was, was relatively kind of um, intellectual in the sense that I had this intense epiphany that there could be a God. And I felt joy, but also intense anxiety because this God was a faceless God and I had no idea if this God belonged to any religion or what, you know, if so, what religion that might be because it was a faceless God and believe you me, I mean, I find a fa- the idea of a faceless God is terrifying. Um, so from there, I was very anxious and this was a period of my life that it's almost hard for me to recollect how incredibly, um, discombobulated I was because I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't working. I was, it was like I was tuned into something. It was like there was sort of an ante- antenna on my head. It was really odd. Um, anyway, shortly after that, I had this bizarre experience where I was up at night reading. And when I went to bed, I lay down and I felt this physical thing kind of wash through me like a drug. And the tears just poured down my face. And it was like I was being molded like soft candle wax. It was very odd. I didn't know what it was. and But I knew it was important. And I remember writing to Father Gregory and telling him about it. And then about a week after that, I had the final experience, which was I went into a little church, a little Carmelite church near the sea, and um, I was just very confused and and not knowing what to do and still not knowing, you know, was God there? And if God was there, then what should I do? Which church should I belong to? Because I did not want to be a Catholic at all, and I didn't even want to be a Christian at that point. But I was in this little church, which is near my daughter's school, and I sat there and looked up, and I was crying, and I saw this um, icon of Christ in stained glass, and I said, I said to this icon, if you're there, you have to help me. And this presence just seemed to descend towards me and almost physically lift me up. And my tears just dried. And I wrote in the book, it was like it was like I had amnesia. And in that moment, everything fell back into my head. Everything fell back into me. It was like myself. I became myself. And when I left the church, I knew that I was a Christian and I knew that I would never forsake Christ and I would never stop praying. And, and from there, it was a it was a journey to determine which denomination of the church I would belong to. And I still, at that point, didn't like the Catholic Church and didn't want to be a Catholic. And then through that summer, I I found myself looking for that presence constantly. I was going into churches, and if it wasn't a Catholic church, it wasn't okay. I I, I was looking for that presence, and I you know I didn't know about the tabernacle, I didn't know about the you know the reserved sacrament. Um, I just knew what I'd felt, um, so I was. I spent the summer looking for Christ in that very physical way. This was actually in London, because I was home for the summer. And, and I read at the same time, <clears throat> I read um, uh, St. John of the Cross and uh, Theresa of Avila and Julian of Norwich. And then when I finally settled down and, and tried to read a very simplified, well, a very edited version of Thomas Aquinas, it was then that I really understood um, that Catholicism was the only answer. And I knew that there was no way around it. And you, I couldn't love Christ and reject, reject his church. It didn't make any sense. So at that point, I was just desperate to become a Catholic. And through many a conversation and much providence and much many blessings, I managed to enter into the church in the Vatican in December of that year. So it was a truly, um, a, it was a lightning bolt. I mean, it was a massive, massive change. And it was difficult for those around me. Um, it was very difficult for my, my mother. Uh, my father uh, was an atheist and, and had died many years before, but my mother is still an atheist and she still finds it difficult. Um, my husband is a non-practicing Catholic. He's Italian, but he doesn't, doesn't go to mass. And initially he was very angry and couldn't understand the changes in me. And and even for friends, uh, particularly, you know, my gay friends that I'd had previously to my conversion, they were very confused and they didn't know if my attitude to them would change. Um, my old friends who I'd hung out with who, you know, lived the liberal life and, you know, had had abortions and all the rest of it. People didn't know how to approach me anymore. Um, so, so there were lots of changes. And I think many times I wondered whether. I should somehow try to retreat into a community. And when I heard about the Benedict option, I was almost like, oh, you know, I'd love to do that. I would love to retreat. I would love to have, you know, the gates go up and to, to only mix with people who are fully Catholic and to live a very cloistered kind of a life. Um, but it's become clear to me, particularly through the writing of the second book, that that's not what I'm supposed to do. And the second book really focuses on my daughter because my daughter was three when I converted and she's, she's a very, um, she's a very deep child, um, she hates school and she hates studying but she, she can grasp theology and she can grasp philosophical points like no one I've ever met and when I was three and going through this I would talk to her very honestly and without any varnishing about what was happening. And I remember, for instance, she came home from school one day, from nursery, when she was three and said, you know, the nun at school says that when we die, we become angels. Is that true? You know, she looks at me with these big brown eyes. <clears throat> and um, and you, I could never lie to her because she would never accept it. So I would say, no, that's not true. You know, angels are a different species and she'd be fascinated. and And I would say, you know, they're neither male nor female. And when it was the truth, she completely accepted it so i know some people find that this isn't the right thing to do with children but with my with my daughter and with me as her mother we've always had very very blunt and honest conversations and she's always been very interested so i told her i mean i i'd spoken to her when she was a baby and when she was a toddler and said there is no god because she was going to a nursery that was run by nuns so i would say to her at the age of two they'll tell you there's a God, they may pray with you, but there isn't a God, and just don't listen. Okay, so when, when I converted, at the, when she was three, I had to say, I got that wrong, there is a God, and I've met him, you know, and you have to take my word for it, and and now, you know, you're going to believe in him as well, and we're going to go to church, and, and all this, and she was very um, curious and accepting, and we had many discussions, and then as she grew, um, she became very aware of the fact that I was going to Mass, not just on Sunday, but, you know, whenever I could. And her dad was never going to Mass. And she, that the family in England were, um, found my religion very odd. And they were sort of tacitly disapproving. Um, she knew that we we mixed with a bunch of people. You know, we might have a priest and a nun to dinner one night. And then we'd have people come and save for the holidays who never set foot inside a church and have got very liberal views. So she was seeing a gamut of people all the time. And I could see that this was it was she was having a real education, but she was protesting a great deal about going to mass. And the protest became more difficult as time went along. Like, oh, my goodness me, you know. Trying to get her hair washed was one thing, and then trying to get her to go to Mass was another thing. It was an absolute nightmare. And I just was always very steady, and I I still believe that um, if you want a child to go to church, and if you want a child to believe, you have to kind of put your foot down and say, you come to Mass, and that's just the norm. But of course, if the other parent isn't going to church, then it's much more difficult to enforce that norm. And especially if it's the father, I mean, statistically, it's shown that if the father doesn't go to church, the children are much more likely to fall away from the faith. So I had this, this sort of despondency within myself. Um, but th- I could see that there was a spark in her that she, she was attracted to prayer and she was attracted to the deep things in life. She wanted the answers. And we had many hours and hours of discussion, which come through in, in, in the book that I've written. Um, and then really the um, the tipping point was when she was preparing for her First Communion and, the, and sort of the night before. Um, First Communion in Italy is, is a huge event. So you'll have about, you know, we had about 70 children being having their First Communion, um, all dressed up. Um, there's, you know, thousands spent on the dinner. Children were having parties with like a hundred people there. Um, children were given iPhones and iPads. There were bouncy castles. I mean, this is like a, a mini wedding and we, we didn't go that far, but nevertheless, it was, it was a big deal. We had relatives coming from England. We had relatives coming from Sardinia and, you know, coming down from Milan. And <laughs> the night before <laughs> the first communion, Flo says to me, I don't think I can do it. And. <laughs> You know, I felt like the mother of the bride, I, you know, talk about put on the spot, and I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, I, I don't know if I believe in God. She said, you know, you believe in God. You had these amazing experiences, um, which I hadn't told her directly, by the way, I was kind of protective of how she found out about that. That's another story. She found out through somebody at school who'd read something I'd written. So she had kind of had an inkling of my in, intense experiences. So she was like, I have never felt anything. I have no proof. Um, I don't know what I think, so I'm not sure that I can receive. And I thought to myself in that moment, you know, what would the world say? And I said it. I said what everybody would say in the secular world. I said, "Okay, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. You can do it when you're older or you can do it when you're grown up. It's important that you decide. And as I said those words... I just had this intense pain in my chest, um, and I just felt Christ's pain in that, in that moment, you know, and I just knew that, A, I, I knew she was kind of testing me in a sense, and I knew she was, in, in another sense, she was very genuine, she was analysing to such an extent um, that she was worried. And I knew that Christ wanted her. And so I I said to her, you know, do you believe in God? And she said, well, yes, I think I do. And I said, well, do you believe that Christ is the son of God? Yes, I think I do. Do you believe in the resurrection? Oh, yes, I definitely believe in the resurrection. So I said, look, God's not asking for you to have any kind of clever experience. God isn't asking for you to be a mystic. God isn't asking for you to be able to you know, stand up and give a speech, you know, arguing the presence of God. He's just asking for you to open a door. It's as simple as that. You've just got to open the door to him because this is a way that he can reach you. And I and I said, you know, I know that she's one person and I'm her mother, but I, you know, the book is all about this. This is all about a mother speaking to a child. I said, I know that he wants you. He wants you so much. And I know that that's true for everybody, but a mother can see sort of in a very very partial way with the eyes of god because i think a mother's love or a parent's love it's almost like the tiniest tiniest piece of god's love for us and and i just knew that with all of her questions and all that i'd been through i knew that he wanted her so much and so she agreed and she she received first communion um and, and then what happened after that was that she still complained <laughs> about going to Mass. We still argued. And as she kind of headed towards puberty, she became harder to handle. And I started to seriously think that she would stop going to Mass when she was a teenager. And I began to think, I have to write down something so that she can read when she's older that really says why. Why we have to be Catholic. Why we have to go to Mass. The absolute guts of it. That to me, haven't been put down in one place in the way that she and I could relate to it. Um, And it's very hard to explain how the book came about because it really was through prayer. But as I said, I've always had a kind of obsession with the Annunciation. And I've written poems since my conversion about the Annunciation. I've written now about five poems about the Annunciation. And two lines from Luke have always stood out to me. And the first one is and he came to her, which is just the angel Gabriel coming to Mary, but it's such a a loaded phrase, and he came to her. You know, it's like whoosh. And then the other phrase, you know, further on in Luke is, and the angel departed from her, which is such an understated phrase, but to me always seemed so sad in a way, because it showed that Mary was left alone. She was then walking in faith. She was walking, in a sense, blindly, And kind of through prayer, I had this image of the Annunciation as this encounter that really encapsulates all of our spiritual life. You know, I was I was speaking to a convert the other day and I said, tell me what happened. And she said, oh, well, I was always Catholic and I was part of a youth group and we were going to church. And she said, what can I say? One day we were in a meeting in the church, she said, and and he came to me. And I said, "Oh my goodness, you know, that's it. That's the line from Luke. That's it." And and he came to me too. And there's generally a moment in a person's life where he does that, right? Um, and I saw this the Annunciation. What happens is that God like whooshes into Mary's life. You know, my goodness, nearly bowls her over. And then you go through these phases. And I take in the book, I take phrases from that from that passage in Luke. So it begins with, "And he came to her," and then do not be afraid. And this is a real chapter for my daughter because she and I are both anxious types, right? And she's always said to me, you know, why would I not be afraid? Terrible things happen. And she's, she's always said, you know, why would I be a Christian? Terrible things happen to Christians. And I wanted to really explore that and really try and explain why that would be and what God means when he says, do not be afraid, because he says it all the way through scripture. And Christ has said it so many times. And even mystics, after biblical times have said it you know he said it to saint faustina he said it to julian of norwich it's said again and again so what does it mean when we know that terrible things happen i mean the angel gabriel said to mary do not be afraid and my response is oh my goodness <laughs> you know, why wouldn't she be afraid um so i really wanted to look at that in a great deal of meditative detail about how um staying close to god in prayer takes care of us and i look at all the way through the book, actually, I look at anecdotes of the saints and, and people that we know and stories like, um, Chiara Corbella, which is a story worth knowing, a young, um, a young Roman woman whose cause for canonization has just opened, um, who had some terrible personal experiences and how she always remained joyful and always remained hopeful. Um, and then to move on through the book, um, the next chapter is Behold, I am the handmaid of a Lord. And in that, another topic that's just so much about my daughter and so much about this generation. And that is about, you know, who I who you are. You know, who, who everyone's obsessed with who they are. You know, they have to have a label. Um, and they have to be seen by people all the time on Instagram, on YouTube. They have to be the best. It's all very competitive. And I wanted to explain in this chapter, you know, how our most important identity is as a child of God, right? So that really goes into detail with that, and I also talk about how our most important identity is the fact that God has chosen to need us. You know of all the beautiful things, I think that's amazing, because God God has no need of anything or anybody, because he's absolutely perfect, but he chooses to need us, so our first calling is to serve God, and we have to completely forget the eyes of the world. And I think that's becoming so difficult in this, in this day and age. Um, And then the book moves on um, to look at uh, let it be to me according to your word and yeah and here I, i talk a lot about my or a bit about my own youth which was completely misspent by the way um and and how modern culture you know even a long time ago when i was young you know rock music and and the literature that we read it can it can be very very undermining it can be very nihilistic and it's talking about the remedy for that and how we need to have the city of God within us. And we, we achieve that by prayer and by reading the Psalms and reading scripture. And I think my, my goal for my daughter is that she, through going to the Mass, even if it's against her will initially, um, and praying the Psalms and knowing those prayers, if you have that all wired within your head, I'm going to talk about this in the same way as, as having another language, Because, I mean, my daughter speaks Italian and English and I talk about this is yet another language that we have to ignite and and feed the synapses and feed the connections. And if this is all within us, we're less likely to be thrown off course. So if we see a film that's kind of um, a bit dark or if we read a book that's not very wholesome, it's not going to throw us off completely. Whereas if we don't have that within us, we're very, very vulnerable. And, you know, I speak from experience. Um, and then the final chapter is, um, And the Angel Departed From Her. And one of the things that the chapter looks at is about darkness in prayer and when when we don't feel that God is there, when we just we can't sense him at all, which I think is very important to talk about. And also about praying when we're depressed or anxious and prayer seems just impossible. And I kind of talk about some things that can really help with that. Particularly speaking, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, because prayer can can and sometimes should be that basic is simply to utter His name. So at the end of the day, um, it's a kind. The book is a kind of it's a, really spoken to my daughter, um, and in fact, it was originally called Annunciation for my daughter, but Ignatius felt that it was universal and that it shouldn't be just restricted to women and or, or young women. And so it's now annunciation, a call to faith in a broken world, and it's really about the spiritual life, and it's about. I I find it very useful useful for myself, you know, if I'm feeling anxious or feeling um, you know, we all we all succumb to those, anxieties and those stresses and thinking I should be doing this and I should be doing that and I should be more successful. Why isn't my life more like that? And it really addresses that, and I I tried to make it something that primarily my daughter but that everybody can turn to and it's full of scripture and it's full of the saints and it's full of stories as i've said
0: yes all woven so together very yeah beautifully. yeah yeah um well let me give you a chance to catch your breath and say a couple of things one is um it is uh it's probably not literally out yet it's coming out in a couple of weeks or so
1: Yeah, there's been a very slight delay, I think, but it should be out by the end of July this month. And
0: it's Ignatius Press, which is the, I know it's the number one Catholic book publisher because they publish my books. But independent of that, they also publish John Paul II's books and Pope Benedict's books and so forth. So it's from Ignatius Press, so it's very easy to find. And it's Mm -hmm. called Annunciation, A Call to Faith in a Broken World. And, um, I was a little discreet and didn't mention your last name in introducing you because sometimes my guests want to be semi-anonymous, but so I'm not going to work today. So the author's name is Sally Reed, just as you'd expect, uh, R-E-A-D. But at uh, the risk of embarrassing you a little bit, I don't think so. I, I would like to read two paragraphs from the, um, oh boy, uh, from the introduction. Uh, mm-hmm. which is, I think, a very beautiful description of the book. And you've done, I mean, you've done it in what you said over the last uh, 20 minutes, too, but but um, just to kind of encapsulate it. Um, so um, let me just turn to the place where I want to start this here. Um, um Uh I uh, um <laughs> I thought I knew exactly where I wanted to start. The Annunciation was a part of my own consciousness long before I believed in God. Even then I recognized it as a pivotal encounter. As I was writing these pages to my own daughter, her own Annunciation, I saw how those few lines of Luke contain everything of my own relationship with God and most phases of the spiritual life his shocking presence and invitation, quote, and he came to her, close quote, the fears that he asks us to abandon, uh, do not be afraid, the realization of who we are, behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord, and what our vocation might be, let it be to me according to your word, and the sometimes seeming absence of God, and the angel departed from her. Everything that Mary went through is echoed in the life of every believer albeit distorted by our fallen nature, and in lesser magnitude. Most compellingly, through Our Lady's physical reception of God, we, like her, can receive Him physically in Holy Communion. What has emerged in this book is a meditation on the universal, close, and remote dance with God. It is an answer to the why that we all may feel in various ways at different times, and that has its genesis in the yearning that is common to mankind. I have tried to show how God moves in every moment of our lives, and how without Him life is so much harder. These pages were written by a mother lovingly guiding a daughter, but they have resulted in a book that I hope will speak to anyone who has felt pain or experienced doubt, or indeed those who know well the mystery and bliss of faith. The Annunciation is an invitation to a deeper relationship with God for each and every one of us. Anyway, I think that does a very good job of summarizing the purpose of the book. And I think in my, in my kind of, uh, twisted introduction to the show, I don't remember exactly what I said, but that it, but it really is a a kind of, uh, uh, you know, a, a guide to the spiritual life in union with God or, or the dance with God. So, and I certainly, um, endorse it. Uh, There was something that, um, when you were going through, again very beautifully the the four um, or the five f- phrases from the Annunciation and and um, how we respond to those circumstances in some sense in our own spiritual life, I, I I kept being hit over the head by one kind of theme that was left unexpressed. Um, so I'm, I, I apologize in advance for springing this on you, but it seems to me, that in a sense, a, a kind of a, a key that unlocks many of the aspects of what you write about is the fact that once we are created, we will willy-nilly live for all eternity. And all we have on earth is, you know, whatever, 80 or 90 or 100 years at most. And so everything about what really matters on earth is really only given its true meaning in the light of eternity and in the light of its implications for the other hundred billion years of our life. And it it seems to me that's the context for, in some sense, it can be a context for do not be afraid. It can be a context for who we are and so forth, because, you know, it it basically turns the world on its head if that is true. If it's not true, we're all fools. And if it is true, then the world for its own sake, doesn't make any sense.
1: No, absolutely. And in fact, I do quote um, Chiara Corbella, who wrote that to her to her son who she died um, before his first birthday and she wrote him a letter and said, um, basically, you know, if, uh, if you don't see life in terms of eternity, it will never make any sense at all. And I think that that's absolutely true is that um, you know as you say, do not be afraid because you know death is nothing to be afraid of. So yeah, yeah, I hope that I kind of approached that in a perhaps a, a subtle way that you might have missed, but.
0: <laughs> no, no, I'm not you. saying, I'm not saying that you, you didn't. It's just that, it's just that in, in a lot, a lot of points in what you were saying, I just felt like it, it underlined, it, it kind of gave the foundation. For instance, I mean, when you were talking about not being afraid, um, Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can basically torture you in this life. Be afraid of he who can, you know, uh, lead you to perdition for all eternity. It just changes the perspective on, on what really matters. And and uh, similarly, um, (laughs) you know, the the people who are most enviable in the eyes of the world are actually the people who should be least envied. Um, And I'm thinking of you know. You know, excuse me for saying this, but I always think of Hugh Hefner in that context, you know, or now Jerry, what's his name, Jeffrey Epstein or something, or, you know, these billionaires with depraved lives and and a great deal of Um, self-indulgence. Those those aren't people, excuse me?
1: Sorry. Yeah, I mean, that's what's so difficult about evangelizing these days is that people have lost the sense of eternity. And and you know heaven and hell are, are rarely discussed, even in, even in churches. You know, so that's what's that's what makes it so hard. Because you're right, it's key.
0: I think it's the glue that holds everything together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And also, you know, we are so conditioned, you know, m- more so than ever before. As I say, to to see. To, to think about not being seen with the eyes of God, you know slash eternity, but to being seen with the eyes of the world um and I always think about when i um a few years ago i I was promoting you know my last book, and I, I saw the number of copies that it had sold, and i was i was you know I was quite happy and then I, my my daughter was trying to make slime i don 't know whether uh, slime has hit america i 'm sure it has, but it when all the school kids were making slime, and she was desperate because she had to make the slime. And I looked on YouTube for a slime video to see how to make it. And this YouTube this YouTube video had like been seen, you know, 600,000 times. And, <laughs> and I said to my daughter, like, you know, we have to talk about numbers, you know, because it, it's got insane. You know, somebody like Ariana Grande can have a billion hits um, and it's it really blows your mind. And we all we all these days seem to think that we can see with the eyes of God. And that we think we can see the world and see what's important in the world. And, you know, more and more is isn't the case because you have to scale right back down and you have to you have to just look at what's here and now. And and it it blows your mind if you try and think about what's happening in a different country and, you know, how many people are are thinking about you because it's utterly meaningless. (laughs)
0: it's certainly meaningless in comparison to god thinking about you and what god thinks of what you're doing right now yeah yeah
1: it's true but i mean the other thing i I think that's important about the book is that just in a very real way um i started writing it as i say when i kind of hit crisis point with my daughter but i finished it when she was 11 and she was just about to be confirmed and um and I realized that she'd changed, you know, she'd really undergone a transformation. And I think that the book also is a, is a kind of a prayer. Well, I think it is a prayer. There's, there's no question. And, you know, she's now so staunch in her faith and, um, and she never misses mass. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I was away, I was away in Ireland for the weekend doing something and I thought to myself, oh, well, she might not make it to mass, but I won't make a fuss. And in fact, that morning she got her father up and said, take me to mass and don't make me late. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean I'm not saying it's going to be plain sailing because she's still young but um I think that you know there's definitely hope with prayer for all of our children and I think that in a sense it's to be expected that they will drift and then come back um because I think that's part of the process it's like a it's not a straight road it's a kind of an S-shaped road I think in many ways but the the crucial thing I think is absolute prayer and absolute consistency from the parent who is who is the believer or from both the parents
0: yeah I think that's true I think I think that the um, parents for whom um, basically their relationship with God and the reality of God is the most important thing in life um, have a much better um, ratio of success with their children keeping the faith than parents who think that being Catholic is the most important thing in the world. Actually, you know, that's a, I don't want to get in trouble for saying this. I'm not sure if it's a fair way to say it, but I think that, um, if, if God is the most important thing in the world, there's a better track record than if being Catholic and being faithful to the Catholic faith is the most important thing in the world. If you see what I mean, where yeah. it becomes yeah. like a primary ethnic identity and an obligation, but it doesn't necessarily really have God at the other end of it.
1: Yeah, I, I understand. Yeah, I do. Um, and I think the, the book was also a process for me to think about um, the, the kind of gated community mentality, the Benedict option for, you know, I'm not sure if that's exactly the right term, but versus being kind of in the world and and, and being with people who, who are believers. And for a while I saw it as a, as a dichotomy and it was like a choice I had to make to be a good Catholic, but I don't see it that way anymore. And I, and I see that both choices are, comp- well, they're not choices. I think God puts you in a certain place, but I think they're both completely valid. You know, I think yeah. if you have a family that's a huge family and they're homeschooling and they only see other Catholics, then that's, that's valid for them and they're doing something they have to do and it's very much needed. But I could see it was painful, but I saw after a few years, I saw that God wants me here, um, you know, with my husband and, with my family in England, who still aren't religious. And if I disappear, that's not going to help anybody.
0: Um I, I think, I, I mean, either, either divine providence is for real, or it isn't. And if it's for real, then the circumstances of our life is exactly the circumstances that God chose for our lives.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's sometimes that's very difficult to accept, isn't it?
0: this is all very difficult to govern <laughs> that's that's why i have to do this show every week to remind myself um let me interrupt because we do have 15 minutes left and and uh, i did not invite calls i don't know why in part because i wanted to to let you um let you speak through the book but um this is a live call in program the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-mary m a r y and i can only imagine that there are, um parents out there who might want to ask you a question or ask you for some advice uh you don't have to be a parent to call in but if you wish to call in uh we still have about 10 minutes to take calls and i will try to keep my eye on the board so it's uh, 866-333-6279 um, i i think that's actually i mean i i said that kind of flippantly but it's it's really it's really true i think that especially in the way that we're swimming upstream against the um you know the the teaching of the culture or whatever, one has to periodically make a conscious effort to remind oneself of the truths of the faith and um that it is all real and so forth and um you suggested reading the scriptures and um reading the psalms, which probably have more p- sort of holy spirit content. But, um, you know, reading saints, I mean, I don't know how to put it. I don't know how anyone can read about St. Maximilian Colby and not come away realizing, my goodness, this is all real
1: yeah yeah no absolutely I think it's it's very true in fact it's funny because um on our on our to do list for this summer, you know, me and my daughter we always write a list of things we hope to achieve by the end of the summer. I'm a nightmare mother, I have to say um, and on the list is like getting to know Jesus better because I think that I really um I took her the Mary route in a big big way as a very small child, which I think is great. I think that's fantastic, and she's got a very good relationship with Mary, but it's almost like um I really wanted her to to really connect with Jesus, because obviously, you know. So we've been doing stuff to that end, and a lot of that has been, you know, reading the scripture and and having an icon of Christ's face, you know, a, a true icon of, of Christ's face, because those those Byzantine icons, the true ones, they were, as far as I know, they were um, written um, using the image of the Turin Shroud as a kind of a, a template.
0: Mm. I thought so, Mary pillow. Actually, there's some, oh, there's some yeah, there's yeah, a, there are actually some um, strange characteristics in the veil. Is that what's called veil of Manapello?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's right. Yeah,
0: Veronica's veil that uh, that are ubiquitous that are on all the Byzantine icons, including a little curl of hair on the forehead of Jesus
1: right.
0: and okay. the beard being parted. Well, um, now,
1: so is, it, is it also true, Roy? Is it also true that that image is it ties into with the? Uh, with the
0: Turin Shroud. Oh yeah, no, the skin Well, but yeah. I don't think there's a curl of hair on the forehead in the sh- oh, okay. Turin Shroud. Okay. But all there's a um, there's also um, and this is definitely isn't on the shroud. Um, the um, whites of Jesus's eyes can be seen entirely around the iris on the veil of Manoppello and in those icons.
1: Okay. So okay. Um,
0: I, I don't have in front of me the name of the book, but um, a uh, a religious, actually an Italian religious, just came out with a beautiful book on the veil of Manipello, including uh, um, transparencies that you can lay overlay of Jesus's face from the veil and Jesus's face from the shroud, and 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 uh, the icons, and it's very compelling that you know that these the, this wasn't someone's imagination that came up with these images. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, it's it's really something, isn't it? And I think you know we really do need those those, those objects to pray with, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm not in a church, therefore with, in front, you know, with the presence, then if I'm at home and I need, I need something to, to focus on, um, you know, an icon or, you know, scripture or what, Yeah.
0: Does it, would it make any sense, um, to expose your daughter to things like St. Faustina's diary, where Jesus is actually speaking?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, probably not the whole thing all at once, but um, but we do we do talk about those things, and I have read her bits and pieces, and in fact, you know, I do quote from that in in the book as well. And um, you know, we go into I mean, <laughs> when when she was younger, that there, there were these great old books of saints, which would I I what are they called? They it was that, they're out of print, but anyway, every day there's a story of a saint. And that was really where her questions started coming from, because they were so hair-raising. These kind of this is Butler's missions.
0: Lives of Saints.
1: You that yeah, I think. I think. Well, no, I don't know actually. I'll, I'll need to check. But anyway, she would she'd be so kind of um enthralled by these stories. But then she started saying, well, you know, if if that's what happens, you know, you end up getting eaten by a cannibal. I don't know about <laughs> that.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: But yeah, I mean, I think I think Saint Faustina's diary, maybe when she's slightly older, might be a good a good way in as well. Um, and I, I still think that, you know, Julian of Norwich is is the, the greatest mystic of all time. I mean, she's phenomenal. And and I think that the, the reason for that is that she writes in a very, very poetic way, but very simply. But also that the theology is um, is incredible. I mean, the, the theology is so deep and there's, there's nothing wrong, which shows that she, it shows that if you're very, very devout and you pray, and you become close to God, and then theology follows. Yeah.
0: No, I was just I was just trying to think of ways that the personality to, of Jesus could be, um, imp- not I don't want to say imprinted on your daughter, but you know that she could mm-hmm. get a sense of of what he's like as a person, so to speak.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. The okay. Well, no one's called in, so I'm going to I'm going to make a hypothetical. Um, you know, kind of situation for you, which is, which is, okay, you, you, uh, you've, uh sounds like you've done, despite your slightly self-deprecating remarks, a very good job of raising your daughter in the church. And um so what, um you know, imagine, uh, you know, a mother calling in saying, you know, what should I be thinking of, essentially? What should I be thinking of to have things work out right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I've done. Obviously, I've given this a lot of thought, and in fact, I have a friend here in town who has a daughter the same age as my daughter, and we're we're going about it in completely different ways. So I, I can give the two examples, and there's no telling at this point in time who has won the competition. <laughs> um, but you know, my my friend says um, that she never forces her daughter to go to mass because she thinks that it will turn her daughter off the notion. So her daughter always has to choose to go. And you know, she often doesn't go. Whereas I'm, I'm the opposite, as I've said. And I make it clear that not going unless you're unwell is a sin. And it's actually a mortal sin. And, um, and I put my foot down and at the moment, like I say, she's going very willingly. Like she doesn't want to miss it. She wants to be there and she'll still say it's boring, you know, but she, I said to her from a very, when she was very young, it's a way of keeping your connection with God. You know, it's that thing about, you know, open the door to him. You know, you have to, he, you know, he, he wants permission to come in. He wants your consent. And that's all you have to do. Um. So uh, to me, it's like um, if you want a child to read, then, you know, you read to them every single day. If you want them to have good teeth, they brush their teeth twice a day. And you don't give up on those things. And it's that routine that I think sticks with a person so that, you know, my my hope is that when she's older and when she's not living at home if she doesn't go to church on a sunday she'll at least feel that that's a very odd thing to do (laughs) you know she'll feel 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 guilty (laughs) so but you know let's see what happens with my friend's daughter right because i mean i I haven't got all the answers and we don't know how these things are going to end out
0: um well i'm sorry i i I can say this because i don't know your friend but um it seems to me like she wouldn't say to her daughter you know, oh, you don't have to eat vegetables. If you want ice cream for dinner every night, that's fine. You know, I'll let you decide yeah. or whatever. You know, things that are objectively good that the child is not in a position to recognize why they're objectively good for them aren't to be left up to the child.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly my argument. I've said it's exactly like that, like eating your vegetables. They might be very boring and even unpleasant when you're young, but that will change as you get older. and they, they can't they can't be missed. Um yeah. And, and you know, when when she was little, I, I I've, done, I've tried all sorts of things. I mean, this is when she was very little. But I would sometimes read up on the the mass read because also, to sorry, this is tangential. But because she's an only child, I think that makes it even more difficult. Because when you've got a troop of children going in together, then you know they're they're all together and they're kind of happy together. But when you've got one, then there's more boredom in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would do things like look ahead for the mass readings and write down a few questions like um like a little quiz you know to make her listen because her concentration isn't the best so she'd be kind of listening for when you know isaiah's name came up in mass and then she'd jot down the answer and that worked really well when she was much younger and now she doesn't need that stuff she she's she's happy to listen or at least she's involved in her own thoughts if if the homily goes on for too long (laughs) (laughs)
0: um i i think i could add a little mea culpa there but anyway um, anyway, we've we've come we've come to the we've come to the end of the hour. I want to thank you for coming on. I do want to um, uh, encourage our listeners to look into this book from Ignatius Press, "Annunciation: A Call to Faith in a Broken World," which is um, uh, an invitation to a deeper relationship with God for each and every one of us, as you say in the introduction. And I want to thank you very much for uh, coming on the show and I hope you have um, ultimate success. I hope you rejoice with your daughter in heaven for all eternity. And well, that's what it's all about, right? <laughs> I mean, really everything else is actually just distraction. Um, and, uh, and I also hope that, that this book gets the uh, audience it deserves. Um, so anyway, so thank you very much. Um, I don't know if you have a final word for our audience.
1: Well, no, except for keep praying and, you know, let's pray for each other.
0: Amen. So, okay, well, uh, thank you again, Sally, for coming on. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in and invite you to join us again next week. Same time, same place for Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism.